For some reason that I'm not quite uh, sure of yet, my kids are really obsessed at the moment with drawing snowmen. All right, I don't know why, but at this point, like literally the count is up to like 80 some snowmen that they're drawing. I think we, we need to talk to someone about this. Um, here's one of the pictures that uh, my son Luke drew recently of a snowman. All right, he's got the scarf on looking cool with the earmuffs. And then there's a smaller snowman next to him, and he's holding an umbrella. Can you see that? And I, I was, he was showing me this. I was like, oh, this is awesome, man. I think my favorite part, I was telling him, is the window you drew. And out of the window, you can see the snow falling outside. I was like, I think that's so cool. And he's like, no, Dad, that's not a window. That's his pizza hat. Indeed it is, his pizza hat. All right, now you can't unsee that, can you? All right. Who would have come up with that? Not me, all right. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. All right, we've been talking through this book of Ephesians about the way that, that the, the grace of Jesus brings us into this awakening. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And the light of Christ will shine on you. Live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, for the days are evil. This awakening to the reality in which we are living, but the deeper reality of the grace of Jesus and the lives that we are called into, the way we've been transformed and the way that we're called to live into that transformation. So we're going to keep moving through that as people whose eyes have been opened, who are seeing things in fresh ways and new ways and unable to see it in the way that we have seen it before. We now see it with new eyes, with fresh eyes. Here's what Paul says here in the beginning of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, jumping right in. He says this in, in, on the screen and in some of your translations, it'll say this. Follow God's example, therefore. So based on what he's been saying before, now this challenge comes in light of what we've been talking about through this whole letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus, this church that he helped found and plant. Follow God's example. That's one translation. But the older translations, and actually more to the root of what he's trying to get across here, instead he uses this language. Be imitators of God. Not just follow God's example, but be imitators of God. That seems different to me. That takes on a different level of challenge. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. This sense of the same way that a child imitates the parent, right? We've all seen kids like try on their parents' shoes and it looks ridiculous with them trying to walk around in that. But that's the sense here. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does it look like to be imitators of God? It means to walk in the way of Jesus, to follow Jesus and be formed by Jesus, to become imitators 
of Jesus. His character infused in us a real transformation that happens in us. C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him, not by our striving or our effort, not by our skill or our merit, anything like that, but by the transforming grace of Jesus, this glorious grace that has a transforming effect in our lives. The grace of Jesus does more than simply changes than simply change the verdict for us. It doesn't only change the verdict from from guilty to innocent. It does more than change the verdict. It changes us. It changes us. It changes who we are and begins to shape us into new people, new creations. The Holy Spirit fills us. The holy love of Jesus transforms us. The holy character of the Father is infused in us and transformation begins to take place. And we become imitators of him moving in the way of love, as Paul says, in the way of Jesus. I love it. Discipleship is following Jesus. That's the initial call of discipleship. Come, follow me. And then what, does, what do the disciples do as they follow him? They're formed by him. And they're made more and more into the likeness of him. That's what the grace of Jesus does in us. It forgives us of our sin, absolutely. And changes that verdict from guilty to innocent, absolutely. And there's so much joy and hope in that. But it is daring enough to go beyond that. And begin to change who we actually are. There's no part of us that the grace of Jesus cannot touch and change and transform and take a hold of in our lives. One of our marks as a church is we talk about optimistic grace. And what we mean by that is that we firmly believe as we read through the Gospels, we read through the Scriptures, that the grace of Jesus has the power to reach absolutely anyone. And that the grace of Jesus is stronger than our sin. Anybody here think your sin is stronger than the grace of Jesus? No. The grace of Jesus is stronger. We believe that. We have an optimistic view of his grace and of the power of that grace and what it can do. This imagery of being an imitator of God, being an imitator of Jesus, goes hand in hand with with the idea of discipleship. So another way to talk about discipleship, often people talk about it as us becoming an apprentice of Jesus. Okay, anybody uh, Star Wars fans? Yeah, so that might creep you out a little bit, right, when we talk about being like an apprentice, okay? Um, Not of the Sith, okay? That's not what we mean, all right? But this idea of apprentice, think about it in in the ancient idea of the trade, of teaching a trade, of passing a trade on, right? You bring along, the expert brings along this apprentice and raises this apprentice up in the skills of that trade, teaches them the tools of that trade. For what purpose? So that that trade might continue on and be passed down through that apprentice. And that's what Jesus is doing with us in discipleship. He's bringing us alongside himself and he's raising us up and he's training us into the pattern of his life in order that we might continue to pass that on and do that for others as well. We are apprentices in the way of Jesus, and the tools of this trade are the basin and the towel. We get this beautiful moment in the Gospel of John on Jesus' last night with his disciples when it says he now showed them the full extent of his love. And what did he do to show them the full extent of his love? He got down on his knees and he washed their feet. 
He took on the role of a servant and he washed their feet. That's what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Leadership in the way of Jesus looks like servanthood. That's what it looks like. And that's what love looks like when it's expressing itself in relationship between us. Uh, There's a a famous professor named Dr. Cornell West. He's been a professor at Yale and at Harvard and at Princeton. And he's famous for this quote. He says, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. I actually got to meet him one time. It was a really crazy. Justin and I met him. And we told him briefly about the ministry of Love Chapel Hill. And he was like, you guys are on the front line of the revolution. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not crying. You're crying. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) But justice is what love looks like in public. In other words, you can't legislate love. There's no law that says you have to love. But there are laws that ensure justice. And that's what love looks like in the public sphere. It looks like justice. I would add to that this. Service is what love looks like in private. Service is what love looks like in private, behind the closed doors when no one else is watching. It looks like taking up the basin and the towel in the way of love, as Paul describes it, the sacrificial love that he describes right here of Jesus. We are imitators. We are apprentices. And he's showing us if you want to be a leader, And it looks like loving and serving in a selfless way towards others. There's another piece that he touches on here in this passage. He talks about sexual immorality. So here in this passage in chapter 5, what we're going to end up covering today, we're going to talk about sexual immorality. And then we're going to talk about that uh, famous verse in this same chapter where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. So buckle up. Thought we just phoned this one in today. All right. Not enough angry emails lately, so let's let's dive in. Here we go. But he talks about sexual immorality all in this same chapter, and he uses this imagery of, of calling it idolatry. He says it's like idolatry. And what he means by that is that in this act of sexual immorality, what we are doing is we're elevating our own desires to the place of ultimate authority in our lives. We're elevating our own desires to the place of ultimate authority. And that drives and decides what we do and how we act towards others around us. It becomes idolatry in our lives. We, we remove restraint and we, we replace it with indulgence and we call that freedom. Orthodox Christianity has always been very bold in the fact that it is reserved sex For the context of marriage. That may seem out of date to you. That may seem out of line to you. But Orthodox Christianity has always been very bold in that. And here's why. Not because Orthodox Christianity thinks that sex is sin. Not because it calls sex sin. That's what we're not talking. That's not what we're talking about. But instead, instead of calling sex sinful, Orthodox Christianity sees sex as holy. And that's why we talk about it in that context, the sacred context of a covenant of marriage. It's not because we have a demeaned view of sex or low view of sex, but because actually we have a very high view of sex. And it's revered and honored and should be handled within that sacred context of the covenant 
of marriage. Now, here's another thing. It angers me that Orthodox Christianity is known for preaching against sexual promiscuity from the rooftops. But we remain silent when it comes to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexual abuse. These break the heart of God. And they are absolutely against the character of Jesus. And over the last few weeks, this conversation has been thrust into the limelight. And for many of you, what has been secret in your life, something that you have held in has been the subject of constant conversation and it's been a very painful and difficult few weeks for you. And if that's your story, if that's a part of your story, then let me just say on behalf of the church that our hearts break with you, that the heart of Jesus breaks with you and for you. Okay? And let me just say on behalf of the church that the shame you feel is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. If you wrestle with guilt surrounding that, that is not yours to carry. That is not yours to carry. And let me say on behalf of the church that we believe you, that your story matters, it carries weight. We believe you. And we want to help walk beside you. There is hope, there is help, you are not alone. And you can find hope and help in the community that surrounds you. So if you need prayer for that today, then please grab somebody after the service. We would love to connect you with somebody who can walk through that with you. Okay? As Paul goes on, He challenges us with this. He says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Let the light of Christ shine on you. The light of Christ will shine on you. And then he says, don't live as wise, as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And the language that he's using here is this language of movement. Let me pause for a minute. Jesus, please help us. Jesus, please help us. Holy Spirit, help us. And um, we pray that you would be kind and compassionate and tender. And for people who are struggling with hurt in their lives, that you would be extremely close to them right now. And you would bring comfort. We want to speak boldly against things but we also want to speak tenderly for people and so i pray that you would do that and you would be close to people who need it people who are wrestling with with those ideas we just talked about of shame and guilt and hurt and that you would be the healing presence in their lives and give us clarity in how to speak about that and address that Help us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I don't want to just move on and forget that, but I want to say again, we're here and we want to walk with you. So Paul says, 
here, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This language of movement from darkness to light is prevalent throughout this chapter. This movement from sleep to an awakening. This movement from death to life. And that is at the heart of the gospel message. That's what the gospel of Jesus is. It is this declaration and this hope that we were dead in our sin, but we are made alive in Christ Jesus. Because of his death for us on the cross, his sacrificial death, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, his resurrection from the dead, overcoming the power of death, even of death. Not even the grave could hold him back. And that same power is alive in us. The gospel of Jesus, as we've said over and over again, does not make bad people good or good people better. The gospel of Jesus makes dead people alive. That's what this message is. And for some of you today, for the first time, you feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting you. You feel a tug in your heart to embrace this, to move from death into life. And if that's you today, if that's you today, then I challenge you to to embrace that, to be open to that, to respond in the depth of your heart with a simple yes. Just with a simple yes. I want that. I want to live in this life of Jesus to step out of my old life from darkness into light from sleep into an awakening from death into life and embrace the life of Jesus that he has won for you if that's you then please take one of the cards that's there in your seat and mark that on the card so that we can follow up with you and we can talk with you and we can pray with you and we can walk you through that journey so what does it mean to be awake in the light and to be alive In the light with what Paul's challenging us here. What does that mean? It means that we, as we've said repeatedly through this series, it means that we carpe kairos. All right. We seize the divine moment. We seize the moment that we are living in. How do you change the day? It's by seizing one small moment at a time. By seizing one small moment at a time, we seize the divine moment. We see the true reality and we live in defiance against what the world sees as reality. So Paul is getting all up in everybody's business when he's talking about what this looks like. He started out by talking about the the broader picture of us as humanity. And then he goes to what that means to live together as the church He's talked about it on a very personal level. He's talked about it in a sexual sense. Now he's talking about it, as the passage goes on, even into our own homes. He is now, with the gospel, invading the privacy of our own homes. And he says, this is going to change even how you live there. The gospel is invasive like that. It moves into the private spaces of our lives. It speaks to the cornerstone of who we are. When no one else is looking. And it says it's going to change everything. Even in that place. And so Paul starts to talk about. What is known as these household codes. And so he says these three separate things. Talking to three separate groups of people. First he says wives submit to your husbands. Do not say amen right now guys. Alright. I'm just, I'm just helping you. Okay. He says. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And slaves, obey your masters. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And, sl- and slaves, obey your masters. Now, when we hear that, this for us is a very scandalous passage, is it not? It is a scandalous passage, but I want to challenge you that it's scandalous before a different reason than you're thinking on the surface. It's scandalous, but for a different reason than you're thinking on the surface. I want to, I want to say two things to you. First of all, I want to say the Bible is not an opinion. And second, I want to say the Bible is not a weapon. First of all, the Bible is not an opinion. Here's what I mean by that. When you come up against a passage that is difficult for you, that you're wrestling with, that you don't agree with, that seems to go against the grain of of how you think, of how you see the world, of how you feel. When you come up against a passage that goes against the grain, do not simply reject it. Do not simply dismiss it. Do not avoid it and do not write it off. Do you know why? Because the Bible is smarter than you are. The Bible is smarter than you are. It is the divine wisdom of God. It is the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And the Bible carries that authority with it. It's smarter than you are. So when you come up against a passage that you don't like, don't dismiss it. Instead, engage with it. Begin to dig into it. Ask yourself, what wisdom is hidden here? And begin to dig into the treasure of that wisdom. Secondly, so the Bible's not an opinion, but secondly, the Bible is not a weapon. The Bible's not a weapon. And you might come back at me and say, well, actually, the Bible says that it's the, the word is like the sword of the Spirit, so it's a weapon. And to that I say, touche. <laughs> In fact, it's like the next passage, all right, from what we're reading right here. If you read just down a little bit lower into chapter 6, it talks about the armor of God, which Josh Paxson is going to be preaching on next week. And it talks about the fact that the word is the sword of the spirit. So, okay, it is a weapon. But also in that passage, it says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spirit and principalities of this world, the spiritual forces of of this world. So the Bible is not a weapon for you to use against your brothers and sisters and other people around you. Okay? It's not a weapon in that way. You cannot use it to oppress. You cannot use it to justify oppression. If you do, you have twisted it and you do violence against others and against yourself when you use it in that way. You cannot beat someone into submission with the Bible because if you do, you have completely missed what the Bible is and what it is about. The Bible is bigger than you are. And the Bible is bigger than your view and the way you see things. And you cannot twist it to simply justify and fit what you think and what you see. It's smarter than you and it's bigger than you. Here's what I want to say about this. So many times... We lie when we preach this passage because we intentionally take parts of it instead of seeing it in its whole. And so what we end up doing is we lie and we actually use it as a weapon against each other. So we start right there in chapter 5 with verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. And we start there and we stop there. And if we do, we're lying. 
we're not preaching the truth of that passage. Now, in your Bible, the reason you often stop, start there is because as you're reading, you see this really convenient heading in, in your print, probably, and it's like italics, and it says wives and husbands, so you start right there. But guess what? The heading and the chapters and the verses were not originally in the letter that Paul wrote. Okay, Paul didn't sit there and like add headings to it or add verses. He's like, let's make this verse six. Okay, he he didn't do that. And the way that the editors have actually divided this up can be confusing if we're not careful. Verse 22 is not the beginning of a new thought. It's the automatic continuation of verse 21. Verse 21 says this, submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If Paul were writing the heading for this passage, that would be his heading. He says it right there in his words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love costly love. So Paul goes down and he does three things here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And slaves, obey your masters. Those three things constituted what were known as the household codes of Paul's day and of the culture of Ephesus. Everyone thought that. That was the standard of living. That was the context of how everybody thought that the house should operate. Here's how the house works. The man is in charge, and here's what everybody else needs to know. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And slaves, obey your masters. And that's it. Everybody already thought those three things. It's not scandalous for Paul to say it. What is scandalous is for Paul to add the other three things to it and to speak directly to the men in the community and to challenge them on even a deeper level. So when it says, wives submit to your husbands as the church would to Christ, he says, but husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? To the point of his death, every last drop of blood poured out for the church. And what does leadership look like in the way of Jesus? It looks like getting down on your knee and washing feet. It means taking up the towel and the basin, these are the tools of the trade of leadership and apprenticeship with Jesus. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Does it take us off the hook, one off the hook from submitting to the other? No, it puts us on the hook together. And we're called each to submit to the other out of reverence for Christ because that's what a Christian relationship looks like. This was radical. This was scandalous for Paul to say this to the husbands. This was scandalous for him to say this to the husbands. He goes on as he continues to challenge the common household code and set up against it a kingdom code. He goes the next step. Children, obey your parents. Everybody thought that. That's not scandalous. What is scandalous is for Paul to come in and say, but fathers, don't exasperate your children. In other translations, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your kids, but instead train them up and raise them up in the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Everybody thought that kids should do that. 
The radical twist is for him to say, but fathers, be engaged with your children. Lean in with that. Be engaged with that. Cultivate and nurture. Be loving to your children. They are looking to you for what God looks like. So many of us struggle with this idea of God as father because of our own fathers in our lives. And so we cut off the conversation right there. I don't want to think about God as father because my father was terrible. Not mine. My dad's here today and he was a good dad. All right. (laughs) But but that shuts it off. And he's saying, no, love your children in the same way that your heavenly father has loved you. Nurture them, cultivate, be engaged in their lives. And that was scandalous and radical. And he's calling for a level of commitment that was unthought of in the culture of that day. I know what the household code says, Paul says, but I'm telling you to live by the kingdom code. And I'm setting up a new code for you. And he goes on to say, slaves, obey your masters. We're going to touch that in just a second. But the heart of what he's saying is this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The key is verse 21, and you read everything else through that lens. Don't take Paul's words out of context. If you take the content out of the context, you'll be confused. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you turn it into a weapon. In the previous chapter, he's talked about this idea of us being a body together and that love is like a ligament. Any medical people in the house? Okay. All right. A couple of you, you like that. The rest of us are creeped out by that idea. Okay. Love is this ligament. And what is the action of a ligament? It actually empowers the body to move. It empowers action. It enables movement, but it also restricts action and movement. It says these are the things that we're going to do. Love is enabling and empowering this, but love is also restricting this. And because I love you, I am restricting this. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to move in that way. We've talked repeatedly about how this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul's writing it from prison. So we've likened it a couple of times to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. And I love this phrase that he says in that letter. This is where he's talking about where the the, uh, white Christian leaders have written him a letter and challenged him and said, why are you bringing this to Alabama? Why are you coming in here and stirring up trouble in Alabama? Why are you here? And he says this, I'm in Alabama because injustice is in Alabama. That's why I'm here. And he says injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And he goes on to say we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are tied together we are tied together in a culture that elevates the self and exerts dominance as power the gospel is defiant against that it says no i'll tell you what power looks like it looks like a man dying on a cross that's power tell you what the kingdom code looks like against the household code the kingdom code looks like love expressed as service service is what love looks like in private, the power dynamic gets upended. Do you want to be a powerful leader? Then learn what it means to love and serve. Learn what it means to love and serve. Now, quickly, some have twisted this in our own nation's history. This passage was twisted to say that the Bible condones slavery. 
That is idiotic. And beyond idiotic, it's evil. That is not what this passage is saying at all. Does this passage condone slavery? Well, people will say, well, look, Paul doesn't seem to speak against slavery. He says slaves should obey their masters. So he doesn't like outright call for the abolition of slavery. He doesn't seem to speak against it. What Paul calls for here, he doesn't condone slavery. In fact, he does abolish slavery with the commandment that he gives to us and the challenge that he gives to us. Because he says this, it says, slaves obey your masters, but masters treat your slaves in the same way. Look at the words. Treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? As the same way as I've been telling them to treat you, you should treat your slaves in the same way. And you should remember that you both have one master, and that's God. And in this radical statement that Paul makes, he doesn't condone slavery. He abolishes slavery because slavery simply cannot exist in this kind of kingdom code because it demands that the master view the slave as an equal under God and says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way that I'm telling them to treat you. Slavery cannot exist in that context. It simply cannot exist in that context. And the people who have used this as a weapon have been lying and have not been speaking the full truth of what this says. This is what Paul's challenging us to live like by this kingdom code. I know what the household code says. Paul's getting at. But I'm telling you there's a kingdom code. And it upends everything. And as Christians, we are called to a different level and we're called to live in a different way. So he takes this from the high, like just high poetry of the first chapter of talking about the glorious grace of Jesus. And he brings it all the way to the most private space of our lives and says, this is what your house looks like. This is what it looks like to live this out in your home. What about for you? What about for you? Who in your home needs to experience your service? Who in your life, in in like the most private places of your life, who do you need to serve? I want to challenge you to wrestle with that. What does it look like for you to take up a towel and basin and to be a leader in the kingdom of God by serving in sacrificial love? How do you serve? What's one person that you can serve in one specific way? I want to challenge you to wrestle with that. Notice that Paul doesn't tell us in here to wait for the laws to change so that everything will get better. And he doesn't say just wait for the outside culture to change. Instead, Paul calls for us to be changed. For us to be changed by the gospel, for that to change the way that we live in relationship with everyone else. And the church has always been the most transformative entity in in the history of the world. The church has always been the place where change takes place. We've been agent of cha- agents of change over and over and over again because changed people change places. Don't wait for the laws to change. Don't wait for the culture to change. You be changed by the power of Jesus. Gandhi famously said, be the change you want to see. I want to, I want to challenge, I'm trying to best Gandhi here, okay? But I want to challenge that and say instead, Be changed. Don't just be the change. Be changed by the power of Jesus. Be transformed by that. The gospel is defiant. We've said through this series that the gospel 
disturbs the status quo that we see around us. The gospel destroys those walls of hostility that have been built up between us. The gospel displaces us from being the hero in the center of our own story. And the gospel defies. The gospel is defiant and stands in defiance against the normal power structures of the world and says this is what power looks like. It looks like getting down on a knee and taking up a towel and a basin and washing feet. That's power. That's power. That is love expressed through service. I want to end with one image here. This last image that we're going to show is a famous image that many of you have seen. This man is simply known as Tank Man because nobody knows his name. Nobody knows where he came from. Nobody knows what happened to him after this moment. This is from 1989. When protesters in Tiananmen Square, Beijing, China, protesters who were calling for more freedom in their culture were brutally and violently taken out by the Chinese government. They came against that protest with a show of power and a show of force. And the next day, as these tanks from the Chinese army are making their way through, one man comes out of the crowd and stands in front of the tanks. This column of power. And he stands there in defiance. And the driver of the first tank did not want to run over him, so he started to go and turn to go around the man, and the man moved to stand in front of the tank again. And the tank moved again to try to go around him, and he moved, and he stood in front of the tank again. The gospel is defiant. This is what it looks like. There's a column of power, and it looks like it has all of the real power in the story, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. We don't know this man's name. We don't know where he came from. We literally don't know what happened to him after this. But we know this moment, this divine moment. How do you change a day? You be changed. And you seize every divine moment, one moment at a time. Jesus, help us to stand as your people in brave and bold defiance. Help us to seize the divine moment that you've given us, this day that we live in right now. And help us to live as signs and symbols of true love. Serving each other, even in the most private spaces of our lives. We're not going to wait for things to change around us. And we're not even going to be the change that we want to see. But we're going to open ourselves up to be changed by you. And the power of your grace at work in our lives. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, he joined them around the table and he took the bread that was on the table 
and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is being broken to make you whole. And then he took the cup on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you drink of it, remember what I have done. And remember me. Today, as we share this cup, there's a special element to it. Our friend Amy Odom actually makes grape juice out of muscadine grapes. That's a North Carolina classic right there, y'all. And she makes grape juice out of that. She has donated the juice for today. And so we're, we're sharing this from one of our friends. This is non-alcoholic juice. It's de- and it's, it's delicious. I tried it already, all right? Not the communion juice, a different thing. The cross of Jesus stands in defiance of what we see as the normal power structures around us. And it shows us what true power really looks like displayed in sacrificial love. If you want to experience that power in your life today, then we invite you to come to the table and to share in the King's Feast. As you come up, there'll be opportunity on both sides. And on this side, a gluten-free option will be available. We invite you to tear off a piece of the bread and to dip it in the cup and to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you need prayer during this time, we'll also have people here to pray with you at the front on each side. And we're going to have that every Sunday. So let's build that practice in us of coming and sharing with one another and praying for each other. Yes, Donna. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay, Donna has a friend who is in the hospital and a friend of our church who's in the hospital and needs prayer. So let's pray for Glenn, too. Let's pray for Glenn right now, okay? Jesus, be with Glenn. And as he's recovering, coming back from what people thought he couldn't come back from, we thank you for that. I pray that you would be with him, your presence would be with him in a very strong way today. That he would sense your power right there in what looks like weakness, a hospital room. So we pray for that today. Be with Glenn. Amen. So I invite you to come to the table and taste and see that he is good.